Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. Good morning. It is the 4th of February. A headline caught my attention this morning as I uh, scanned the news, as I do before I gather with you here. Uh, And the headline that was clearly designed to be clickbait, and I knew it when I clicked on it, um, was this. It was a quote, or it was in quotation marks, but it was not attributed. And I also found out after clicking, it was not complete. But here is the incomplete quote that served as a headline this morning. There has never been a greater betrayal. Now, in my mind, a mind, right, saturated in Scripture, cultivated in Christ, in my mind, that could only apply to Judas in the case of Jesus, right? I mean, there's never been a greater betrayal, right? I mean, that had to apply to that. Why was that scrolling on CNN? Well, see, that was clickbait for me. I suspected the CNN headline referred to someone or something else other than Judas and Jesus. Um, And, of course, I was right. But as I read about the you know latest intrigue related to internal political party power struggles, uh, I saw another biblical reference emerge that had been co-opted for contemporary uh, application and misappropriated, uh, I might add. A member of Congress was alleged to have, quote, forgotten the golden rule. Well, of course, it had been rewritten by the commentator in this particular case. And so I thought, hmm, you know what? Let's remind ourselves this morning of what Jesus had to say. Uh, about that which became known as the golden rule. Uh, And let's remind ourselves um, always about, indeed, that that situation in which there has never been a greater betrayal. Like, let's not casually use these words, nor let us allow these words or phrases to be used um, in in pop culture and popular culture without our saying, hey, hey, let me put a stake in the ground right there and remind you uh, of the biblical referent that you're using. So, in terms of the golden rule, we would be looking at verse 12 from Matthew chapter 7. And you would want to read that in the context of the full Sermon on the Mount. So, you would want to read this morning Matthew 5 through 7, chapters 5 through 7, or at least the entirety of chapter 7. Now, obviously, in the interest of time this morning, we're going to pluck the verse out of its context and remind ourselves uh, of the golden rule according to Jesus. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So now I'm curious, um, when I read that, Matthew 7, verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. I'm wondering to myself, um, have we often truncated the golden rule according, according to Jesus? to just be do unto others as you would have them do unto us. My guess is you've truncated it. I know I have too. But the full sentence reads, the full verse reads, so whatever you wish that others would do unto you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, what is that last part talking about? Did you catch it? For this is the law and the prophets. 
Jesus says that doing unto others as we would have them do unto us is actually a summary of the law and the prophets. Now, listeners in Jesus's day would have heard an echo effect right there because Jesus had actually just used that phrase um, earlier in what uh, Matthew records and we just and we describe as the Sermon on the Mount. And um, and so they would have heard uh, a quick echo, echo effect of Jesus having described himself as the one who fil- fulfills the law and the prophets. And a little bit later in Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus is asked a question about identifying the greatest commandment, which uh, he then reiterates as uh, reflective verbatim of the Shema in the Old Testament, that, that the greatest commandment is that we would love God with all that we are, all that we have, and all that we do. And that in that was contained all the law and the prophets. So as you consider the golden rule and as you consider its co-opting in the culture today and the way that biblical references are utilized today, even in headlines, I want you to feel free to share with people the origin of the golden rule, the greatest commandment, the good Samaritan, and yes, the greatest betrayal of all time. Like, let's let's get on this. Let's identify the ways in which Bible references are co-opted in the culture. And let us be the people who say, hey, you know where that comes from? I do. Let's talk about it. All right. Next up, I got Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. We have a lot of headlines to cover. We'll be right back. This is my right. Ben Johnson tweets at the right, right, the rights writer. He also posts at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G, where he faithfully serves. Um, hey, Ben, welcome back. Welcome back to you. Good to talk to you this week. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We are on day 15 of the Biden presidency. I had to count, but it's day 15. You previewed uh, what we could expect in the first 100 days in a post at Acton.org, what to expect in Joe Biden's first 100 days. So I thought I would ask you, how's it tracking at this point? Uh, at, at the risk of tooting my own horn here, I, I had a pretty good insight as to what he was going to do. Uh, what Joe Biden has done has really been remarkable and transformative in a lot of ways, uh, just in executive orders and actions alone. Uh, within his first 15 days, as you have said, he has already signed almost as many executive orders as FDR did in his entire first month as president. And FDR holds the record. So uh, Biden, within his first day, signed 17 executive orders or executive actions that change different federal policies. So uh, his commitment to the pen and phone that Obama talked about has been robust and enduring. Uh, and then the, the policies that he's advanced have mostly been those uh, of the previous administration and those which uh, he had campaigned upon. So it's exactly as as I laid out. Of course, his top uh, policy priority in terms of legislation will be the uh, COVID relief package, the American Rescue Plan. And there's very little sign that he's going to uh, compromise in any sense with that. The Republicans want a $600 billion plan, or $600 trillion, uh, $600 billion plan. He's looking at a $1.9 trillion plan. And uh, needless to say, the, the two are not going to meet. Uh, he is, he's very much committed 
to uh, his initial package, he said would cost trillions and trillions. So apparently it's been pared down even from his uh, initial uh, desires. So I think that's his top plan. And then these executive orders uh, have been uh, truly transformative in a lot of ways, uh, most of them not positive for from a Christian worldview. Well, and let's focus in there. I mean, of particular concern from a Christian worldview, um, you know, we would look at the executive orders related to life. We unpacked some of those with Matthew Hawkins um, last Friday, and we'll do so again this coming Friday. Um, And we're focusing in the next segment on the immigration orders um, with Matthew Sorens from World Relief. I'm wondering what else in terms of the executive orders really has your attention? Well, uh, probably from a, from our Christian perspective, uh, the entire review of transgender issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this would spell the end of women's sports, as we've talked about many times uh, in our previous segments. Uh, the idea that uh, men and women should compete, uh, whether we're talking about uh, track and field or whether we're talking about uh, really dangerous sports like MMA and violent sports, uh, this this is something that has been uh, changed through executive order and fiat. Of course, as we've talked before, this uh, in the past and during the Obama administration, the transgender policy was also intended to uh, apply to overnight accommodations, even dorm rooms at colleges. So that's something that uh, is very concerning. Some of the other issues, as you mentioned, of course, revoking the Mexico City policy, you've talked about that. Uh, outside of that, there's uh, the reintroduction of uh, critical theory in federal training, federal sensitivity training, and then his environmental ordinances, particularly rejoining the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, that by itself is slated to uh, cost 400,000 U.S. jobs, $2.5 trillion in U.S. GDP within uh, about 15 to 20 years. And then canceling the Keystone XL pipeline, that's another 11,000 U.S. jobs. So uh, altogether, you're looking at a decimation of our energy infrastructure, and really there is nothing to replace it with. That's the real problem here. It, it reminds me of a scene from a 1980s sitcom. Uh, forgive me, uh, it was a show called Just the Ten of Us, but it's always stuck in my mind. It was a spinoff of Growing Pains, where uh, this coach is about to be fired, and he's looking through the want ads in the newspaper. Newspapers are what they had before the Internet, for our young listeners. <laughs> and he was he was looking through at the want ads, and his friend comes along, takes the want ads, and throws them in the trash. And he says, uh, you know, that's not the place to find a job. Where you want to find a job is word of mouth. So he says, have you heard any good jobs? And he says, No. That that's basically what Biden has done to our energy policy. He's canceled uh, the XL uh, pipeline. He's talking about regulating carbon very much more. And yet there is nothing to replace it. It would take 22,000 square miles of solar panel yeah, to uh, to run our economy on uh, solar under our current needs, let alone anything that we're uh, moving on beyond that. That would be like pampering uh, the entire uh, Mojave Desert. Uh, with with solar panels, and then there's no way to store it. We don't have the capacity to store or transmit that. And when it's not sunny or when the wind isn't blowing, if you're using uh, energy turbines, then there's no energy generation. So uh, that's a a genuine threat to uh, those of us who rely on energy, particularly during things like a polar vortex uh, that we're about to experience in our part of the country. Yeah, I think that the conversations related to um, economic... Uh, which are connected to environmental executive orders, I I definitely think those are under the radar for a lot of Christians. They are of greatest concern to to our neighbors whose jobs are uh, directly affected. Um, And so I do think that um, in terms of sensitivity to our neighbors and what's really going on in the culture, 
we can, as Christians, tend to get fixated on things like the Mexico City policy and uh, you know the the use of federal tax dollars around the world for the promotion of abortion, or we can become really fixated on the executive order related to transgender, specifically female athletes, and we can lose sight of some of the, I mean, world-changing, I mean, I, I recognize that those are worldview important, and they are world-changing um, from a Christian worldview, but there are some shifts taking place um, based on U.S. economic policy that we absolutely must pay attention to in terms of uh, our space and place in the world and um, and the security of our economic um, footing. I mean, even the $15 minimum wage is a, is a conversation that we have to consider and talk about um, and recognize, you know, the challenge of how we as a people collectively are going to afford the kinds of things that this administration is uh, very, very quickly moving forward on. And there's no stopping the train at this point. I mean, Biden not only has a plan, he has all the votes needed uh, to carry out the plan. So it's um, it's definitely a challenge. Hey, we got to take a very brief break. I'm wondering when we come back, Ben, if we, you and I can talk about something going on in Denmark. There is a proposed legislation that uh, would impact religious freedom, not only in Denmark, uh, and I think I suspect across Europe, but you know, but ultimately around the world, it's a really a potentially terrible precedent. Could we talk about it? I'd be delighted to. It's, it is indeed a, a chilling precedent. All right. For those of you who plan to preach on Sunday, you got that sermon ready because the government wants it. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is amazing Continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute, he and I are going to uh, talk about a headline out of Denmark. Uh, the Danish government is considering a law that would require, now get this, the transcription and prior approval of the manuscripts of all sermons to be preached in Denmark by anyone speaking a language other than Danish, which would mean if Ben or I were invited to Denmark to talk about something um, it would most certainly apply to us. What's going on here? Why is this a threat not only to religious liberty uh, in Denmark, but you know, what does this foretell of the future? Well, what Denmark is trying to do is tackle the great Lutheran terrorist epidemic uh, that it's experiencing. <laughs> so, uh, of course, in, in Denmark... The they missed languages... that, though. See, if they wanted to tackle the great Lutheran terrorist uh, epidemic, they needed to do so when uh, when the Reformation took place in the 1500s. Like, right, they are like 500 years late in this effort. Uh, the train has left the station on that one, but I, I think we've got it under control today, thank God. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the Danish is the official language of Denmark, of course, and what uh, the Danish government is asking is that anyone who preaches in any other language have their sermons translated and then submitted to the government for review. Now, that sounds pretty chilling in and of itself. What's happening, of course, is that there is a real Islamic terrorist threat and Islamic extremism is a problem there as it is anywhere else in the world. Uh, and they have faced down several um, several terrorist incidents. Uh, there were two, at least, that were exposed in the previous year. They've had filmmakers killed on their streets. So it's a real problem. However, they're going about it in the most ham-handed way that they can, which is by saying that anyone who preaches in a language other than Danish uh, is immediately a suspect. Uh, as as you mentioned, uh, this, this applies to people who obviously are not Muslims. Uh, this applies to the sizable German contingent of Lutherans who speak in German and have for 800 years. Uh, it applies to those who speak Greenlandic. Uh, it applies to many Anglicans who speak English. 
Uh, and obviously, there, there's no terrorist threat from uh, the Church of England, from the Lutherans, etc. So this is an incredibly ham-handed way of prying into what ministers are saying, which is incredibly ineffective. Uh, first of all, many ministers don't speak the native language, which is why they're preaching in another language to begin with. Uh, so so they're, they're going to have to have somebody else translate their words. Uh, many ministers, including myself most of the time, don't write out full sermons word for word. Uh, we write notes and then preach from those, or we preach extemporaneously. I can't imagine what charismatics and Assembly of God people are doing uh, who preach as the Spirit moves them, and they don't have anything prepared when they go in. So they're going to have to uh, record and then uh, have it transcribed. But this is a vast invasion of religious privacy in the name of political correctness. Uh, very simply, they, they need to uh, be able to investigate what's happening in certain terrorist inciting uh, areas and certain clerics who are extremists and who are radicalizing people, but they're doing it since they can't pass a targeted law, nor should they. They're doing it in the most ham-handed way possible by applying it to everyone in the name of religion. Uh, if intelligence officers have actionable intelligence, they should wiretap the individual who's being radicalized, find out what mosque he goes to, and it's almost always a he, uh, find out what sermons he's listening to online, and follow the nexus of terrorism and terrorist incitement from there outward. But instead, they're asking that everyone who is, uh, who is a minister submits their sermons for approval to the government. Obviously, this involves the government in determining what is proper and improper religious speech. The government has no proper role in that, nor should it. It's stunning. It's stunning in its scope. It's stunning in uh, its audacity. Um, and it's a little bit stunning that more people haven't been talking about it earlier in the process. Apparently, uh, the Danish people have already been surveyed and they, by and large, agree with this kind of legislation. Um, and part of the reasoning behind that is, although they have a, a state church, uh, the, uh, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, they, they do not actually have a very robust practicing Christian community, like something like less than 3% of Danes actually go to church. So, you know, we're talking about a nation of something like 6 million people um, considered Lutheran on paper. I mean, they belong to an established state church, but um, they they don't actually participate in in any ongoing religious community or observance. And so if only 3% of the population is actually attending Sunday services, um, you can you can see how people might imagine that, well, gosh, people ought to be able to present their sermons in in advance and have them transcribed and, and carry that burden. Um, and why should I worry about it? But you know, as goes Denmark in this case, you know, there are those across Europe who are who are worried about, you know, there goes the rest of the EU. Well, you, you've hit the nail on the head, which is this is a NIMBY problem. Uh, people are, are simply not affected. Uh, 61% of Danes consider themselves non-religious, either not practicing, atheists, secularists, or none of the above. And so it, it doesn't affect them. They really don't have any idea what goes into sermon preparation. Even most Christians don't. And so the idea that you would have a manuscript that you could simply send up for government approval sounds completely uh, rational, reasonable, and yet... That's not how sermons work. That's not the way religion works. And uh, quite candidly, what's on the paper isn't always what's get, what gets preached from the pulpit. Uh, not only will this be ineffective because people don't always preach what they write and people don't always write what they preach, 
But unless you're exceptionally dim, you're not going to incite violence and then send it to the government for approval. So this this is uh, this is not something that's going to happen. It's not something that's going to work. If Denmark has a, a radicalism problem, then it needs to put the intelligence into uh, into where it needs to be in terms of following potentially potential extremists, potential extremist clerics. It needs to put money into human intelligence so that it can collect actual actionable intelligence and uh, defend itself in that way, not invade the religious freedom of people from all religious backgrounds, Muslims, Christians, Jews, and other faiths who are practicing their religion peacefully every single Sunday or Sabbath. Okay, two things you guys have to go and um, and read and or watch and listen to um, at acton.org. Um, you you just have a great piece uh, there on um, on Thomas Sowell. So t- t- just um, first of all, uh, tell people who that is and um, and what this piece is about because I really want people to go and watch it. Thomas Sowell is one of the greatest living economists of our time, which is which sounds like uh, an incitement to narcolepsy, but it's really a wonderful, wonderful. He's program. awesome. He really is. Uh, grew up in in a uh, segregated area, moved to uh, Harlem and became one of the foremost intellectuals of our time. He he has a penetrating intellect. He is able uh, to look at any highly emotional issue and simply go to the facts. Uh, because of his training and his background, he analyzes things based on data, and he has taken apart so many shibboleths, so many uh, d- issues that we have discussed, myths and common beliefs that uh, are simply erroneous, that he has dismantled through the years, and he's shown the real underlying problems. So, for example, he was one of the first, per, one of the very first people to talk about the problem of, of the welfare state disintegrating the family among those who are highly uh, government dependent. He was one of the very first to talk about the illegitimacy problem and its enduring uh, issues in terms of the family. And he has talked about economic opportunity and how to revitalize a community from the inside out. It's good. Uh, not just for uh, for a black economist. It's good for anyone who's interested in data, anyone who's interested in the truth. And, uh, you know, he, he is 90 years old now. I pray that we have someone who is equally committed to facts and reason and rationality who can rise up and take his place. So it's a 58-minute uh, documentary. It's well worth your time. All right. Um, we love talking with um, with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can follow him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. You can find what he's writing at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Ben, as always, thank you so much. Thank you. God bless, Carmen. Likewise. We'll be right back. All right. A number of headlines related to immigration, a number of executive orders and actions by the Biden administration in relationship to immigration. We're going to talk about all of it with Matthew Sorens from World Relief. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. As a parent, you set rules in your home for a good reason. Most likely, they focus on things like honesty, obedience, and respect for others. But what happens when your team blows right through all the rules? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Rules are expectations and guidelines that are placed around our behavior so that the family operates within our personal belief system. But all the rules you put in place don't make a difference if there aren't consequences to back them up. It's the consequences that will teach your children to learn right from wrong and move them from selfish to unselfish behavior. 
So don't keel when the pressure's on. Follow through as needed with the consequences. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Sorens serves uh, as the convener of the Evangelical Immigration Table. He works for World Relief as the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy. Uh, Matthew Sorens, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. That's great to be with you again, Carmen. So lots and lots of, um, of headlines related to um, the word immigration. And so I thought, let's get Matthew back on and let's just let him riff uh, in terms of what what has happened, what is happening, and what can we expect to happen? So I'm going to actually just allow you to lead us out. Okay. Well, that that's probably a good setup because there is, you know, of course, with every administration changing, we expect some executive changes. Immigration is actually an area where the executive branch has a lot of authority relative to some other parts of how our government works. So we've seen some of that starting day one. The pres- President Biden came in and did a series of executive orders. Um, that have pretty significant effects on the immigration system, undoing some bans on individuals coming to the United States from particular countries, what's sometimes been called the Muslim ban. Uh, Although I always thought it was worth noting that there were several countries that were uh, non-majority Muslim that were affected as well in Africa, for example. So those country-based bans were lifted on day one. Um, Then what we've also seen a lot of is uh, sort of I would describe them as symbolic and meaningful, but not complete actions. So, for example, just uh, two days ago, there was a series of executive orders that mostly said the Secretary of Homeland Security should create a plan to do this. You know, the Secretary of State should create a plan to do that. So it doesn't necessarily immediately resolve a situation, but it is saying this is the direction we're going in. Um, And that affects things such as uh, our asylum process in the United States, which is where someone who has been persecuted or claims to have been persecuted can request protection by the U.S. government. There were a lot of changes in the previous administration restricting who could qualify there. So it's likely that some of those restrictions will be rolled back. Um, We also are expecting some significant changes to the refugee resettlement program. Although, again, for the moment, the the cap on refugees is still at 15,000, which is a historic low, which is what it was set at last fall. Um, And then we also have seen... um, Excuse me, the president has said they're going to create a, commi- a commission to w- focus on restoring the families that were separated at the border. So children from parents mostly been 2018, some in 2017. Um, there's still, unfortunately, some of those children are not with their parents. So they're basically creating an intergovernmental agency, and we expect some non-governmental players to be part of that as well, to work on making sure that those children are brought back to those parents. So... Uh, I would say my general perspective on all those things is those are positive steps, and there's a lot of work to do because, you know, there were some very um, upsetting dynamics. Obviously, the family separation, I think most Americans were troubled by those images, and that we're still resolving that several years later speaks to really the trauma that a lot of those families have been through. Um, we've had conversations here um, with uh, with individuals who, you know, maybe maybe fostered one of those of those children and um, became quite aware then of uh, of what their family uh, of origin was going through. 
in terms of being separated at the border and then the adult, ultimately the parent, ultimately being deported and then trying to figure out how to be reunited with the child after that. Like it's a really each in every one of those stories is very, very complex and requires a lot of attention. It's not something that's just like simply addressed by a change of um, of national policy um, because there's international relations Yes. In play as well. So can we talk a little bit about that? Because I know that um, deportations have been, I'm going to use the word, you know, suspended for some period of time. The remain in Mexico policy has been suspended. Building the wall has been suspended. But some detention facilities have apparently been reopened and maybe even expanded. Law enforcement on the border being asked to, like, selectively enforce laws. I just think that it's you know, there's just so many threads uh, to pull in relationship to the immigration conversation. Yeah, uh, you are tracking this really about as well as anyone I'm aware of because it is so complicated. Um, a lot of what we've seen right now is things have been suspended. And then the question is, well, what's the new plan? And the answer so far has been, we'll, we'll let you know soon. So, um, which is in some ways reasonable. I mean, there's incredibly complex policies here that, you, you know, frankly, I think we've seen negative examples of issuing an executive order without preparing the Department of Homeland Security for how to implement it. Um, that, that I think is not a good idea. So it is important to plan things. But also, of course, these policies affect human beings, they affect the safety of our country. So it's important that we get them right. Um, in terms of, for example, Remain in Mexico. So Remain in Mexico is basically the idea when you have an asylum seeker, someone who says that they have fled persecution and they show up at the U.S.-Mexico border, whether they, they walk up to the port of entry and say, hello, I'm here to request asylum, so they no, no, no violation of law necessarily involved there, or they cross the border unlawfully, where the law says they can still request asylum even if they have crossed the border unlawfully. What has been happening under what's called the Remain in Mexico policy is they, those people have been sent back to Mexico to wait for their asylum hearing, which can be months and in some cases years. And those particular parts of Mexico along the border are... are I mean, there's wonderful churches and others trying to help people, but there's also some organized crime there and other elements, really precisely the sort of things that these people were often trying to escape from in Central America. So it's been a, a really difficult situation, kind of, a, I mean, almost an informal refugee camp that has developed along the U.S.-Mexico border on the Mexican side. So we have been told that the remaining Mexico policy is going away. We don't know for sure what will be replacing it. So that is, you mentioned there's some reports of of building some new detention facilities on the U.S. side of the border. Um, I think the idea there is to be prepared if there are a larger number of asylum seekers to process those people, um, and including families. And a lot of asylum seekers, you know, I think people might think of adults, but a lot of those who come and seek asylum are actually families with small children, which is part of where past administrations, both the Trump administration and the Obama administration, have gotten into trouble because it is hard to take care of lots of small children who show up um, sometimes with parents, sometimes unaccompanied. Um, but, uh, you know, those are situations we're going to be watching very carefully because both legally and certainly morally, biblically, we have a particular obligation to watch out for those who are uniquely vulnerable. And certainly a child without his parents or her parents fits into that category. Yeah. And we're trying to have all of this conversation in the midst of a global pandemic. Like, I, I never yeah. want to lose sight of the fact that all of this is happening uh, in, in a time when, um, yeah, we're not, we're not supposed to be living in close quarters with one another. And, and yeah. putting people or housing people in detention facilities is, um, you know, or, or informal refugee camps, as is uh, currently 
the status of those um, migrating north from Central America and finding themselves, you know, kind of stuck in Mexico. Like, right there, there are real challenges here that we uh, that we need to address um, from a health and safety standpoint as well. Hey, Matthew Sorens and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. Uh, he convenes the Evangelical Immigration Table, national coordinator of that effort. Uh, he also works for World Relief. And I am going to um, pivot a little bit to a conversation about refugees and the status of refugees around the world, um, because I always think that it's helpful when Matthew's on to help help us be reminded uh, of the distinctions between those around the globe who are refugees and uh, the other conversations that we have uh, here in the United States of America about immigration writ large. So that conversation next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Matthew Sorens, he's the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief. He's also the National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table. Um, I want to talk, Matthew, if we can, uh, about refugees, the status of refugees around the world. I will confess I have uh, taken my eye off that ball in recent months. Um, And so bring us up to date. What kinds of numbers are we talking about around the globe? Where are you know, the really significant um, refugee challenges being faced, and where are we in terms of U.S. engagement? Yeah, so the most recent numbers that I've seen are the the estimates are there's 26 million refugees in the world, which, I mean, I know that my mind sort of hears that number and glosses over, like I can't think of what 26 million people look like, but that's a higher number than at any point since anyone has been tracking these figures. I mean, it is an incredibly high number of people. And those are just those who meet this legal definition, someone who has fled their country because of a well-founded fear of persecution. So not poverty or other hardships, but for persecution uh, and is outside of their country. So if you fled persecution within your country, that describes another 40, 45 million people in the world, you don't count as a refugee. It's only once you've actually left your own country and you're in some second country, often in a camp setting, because the country that receives you is willing to tolerate you, but doesn't want you joining their society and their economy, or you're living kind of within that country, kind of usually without work authorization, which since people need to eat and have a place to live, usually means they're working unlawfully and at some risk. So it's just an incredibly tenuous situation. And of those 26 million, roughly half, again, are are kids. So these are, it's a lot of families. Uh, We're still seeing large numbers who have fled Syria in the last 10 years but also um, Congo in the the Democratic Republic of Congo in in Africa. Um, Afghanistan still has a huge number of refugees uh, globally. And um, in terms of how that affects the U.S., historically, the U.S. has resettled somewhere around 70 to 90,000 refugees per year. So by resettled, that means our government, sometimes based on referrals from the United Nations or others, identifies individuals abroad interviews them abroad, verifies their story to make sure that they both indeed are a refugee and that they're not in any way a security threat or a public health threat. And obviously COVID adds new public health dynamics, but they do, even for the few who are coming now, they, you know, everyone has a COVID test right before they get on a plane and then they are quarantined when they arrive. Um, but they, um, those numbers have fluctuated over the years. Again, usually somewhere between 70,000 to 90,000. Uh, last year in calendar year 2020, it was less than 10,000. So the numbers have gone down really dramatically 
in the last several years. And again, with the new administration, that's something that the president has the authority to change. So the President Biden has indicated, he said, although he hasn't followed through on this so far, um, that he wants to raise the ceiling on refugee resettlement up to 125,000. That'd be a really remarkable shift. Um, President Trump said it in his last ceiling at 15,000 and then to go up to 125,000. Realistically, I, I think our position at World Relief has been that is an important symbolic statement to reaffirm to the globe that the U.S. is going to lead in refugee resettlement again, which, I mean, honestly, we have sort of, we're not the leader in refugee resettlement anymore. We gave that up to Canada a few years ago in terms of total numbers of refugees being resettled. Um, but so I think it's important to symbol that to the world. Realistically, the infrastructure has been so uh, decimated over the last several years and as both overseas in terms of processing, there's just not the U.S. government employees doing the processing overseas that would need to happen to bring 125,000 refugees to the U.S. this year. Um, because it's a process that takes at least a year in almost all cases, often you know, a year and a half or two years to get through the vetting process. So it's going to have to rebuild a little bit slowly. Um, but our, you know, we're hopeful at Water Relief that we will do that rebuilding. And, and we're doing the rebuilding on our end. We're one of the agencies that works with the U.S. government and with local partners like, like Arrive Ministries in Minnesota and uh, many of our World Relief offices to welcome families when they arrive and to connect them to volunteers. You know, in our case, those are volunteers from local churches in most cases who want to walk alongside those families, help them integrate into a new community. And so we're working on rebuilding even while the overseas pipeline is being rebuilt as well. So I want to um, I want to highlight there that this is actually an uh, an area where if you're you're a Christian, there's a number of things going on in the Biden administration that you know concern you um, that you don't appreciate. You're wondering where where is there somewhere that I can engage? Where is there um, uh, a policy change that's going to lead to a change in practice? that I could actively participate in, that my church could engage in, um, and we could do so in a way that um, honors the reality that every person around the world is made in the image of God, and we have a responsibility for one another. And there are now 26 million people around the world, in addition to the 40 million internally displaced persons, there's 26 million refugees around the world, people who have had to leave their, their home, their country, um, and they cannot go back. Half of those refugees, half of those 26 million people are kids. Uh, they're Syrian, they're Congolese, they're Afghani, they're Rohingya. Um, they're uh, around the world in various places, and they're all in desperate need. And so what does it look like if you want to close your eyes to everything else for the next four years that's happening in the United States of America? Um, open your eyes to this. And involve yourself in the possibility of a newly vibrant refugee resettlement. This is distinct and different from the conversations we're having about the southern border of the United States. And so, first of right. all, become educated about the difference between immigration conversations about DREAMers and DACA and what's happening at the southern border and people crossing illegally. I mean, on and on and on. Differentiate, learn, learn the difference between that and the conversations we're having about refugees and the status of refugees around the world, the process through which refugees um, go through in order to be resettled, 
and check out what's happening at World Relief, or if you're in Minnesota, check out what's happening through Arrive Ministries. Um, As always, Matthew, thank you so very much. I look forward to an ongoing and continuing conversation. I hope you'll bring us good news from time to time. Yeah, I I will do my best, and I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. That's Matthew Sorens. You can find him at World Relief and the Evangelical Immigration Table. We'll be right back. Okay, I want to circle back briefly to um, the story from Denmark, and I want to uh, make a a connection for you that you can make in your conversations today, because you're going to have a hard time, um, I think, like lifting up a headline out of Denmark and uh, and having people in the culture today be particularly interested. And um, your pastor might be super interested because, you know, your pastor is the one that preaches a sermon, so they might be interested in the story. But everybody who uses Bluetooth, here you go. Here is your contemporary cultural connection for the story that we talked with Ben Johnson about out of Denmark. Um, the, the historical connection and the contemporary connection is Bluetooth. Do you know the origin of the word that we use to describe how our digital devices connect wirelessly? Do you know the origin? King Harold Bluetooth Romson uh, of Denmark in the 10th century. That's right. That's right. He... Uh, was what I will describe as a civic reformer. He also is the one who Christianized Denmark. Prior to him, it was the cult of Odin. There you go. They worshipped Norse and Nordic myth, mythological gods. And uh, King Harold Bluetooth changed the nation in the 10th century. And you're saying to yourself, uh, okay, is Bluetooth a nickname? Yes, it is. He had a Bluetooth, a tooth. whose root had died. And so he had a tooth that appeared blue. And so he was known as Blue Tooth, his real name, King Harold Gormson, uh, well known for two things, uniting Denmark and Norway in 958 and his dead tooth. There you go. Um, All right. I have no idea why they why they now call the technology of Bluetooth after uh, after King Harold Gormson. But he is the guy that made of the Danes a Christian nation, which is, uh, it was an interesting um, conversation maybe for you to surface today in terms of the the discourse we had earlier with Ben Johnson. All right, there you go. That's my little um, interesting cultural point of contact with that story. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Peter Kapsner is going to be here, and then we're going to talk with Preston Sprinkle about his new book, Embodied. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.